It's lovely to see so many people here for uh, the first of a whole series of fellow and focus discussions. Uh, this is obviously the fellows, our visiting research fellows, are such an important part of the Hub community. I'm also so delighted to welcome Chris Morris, who is the VPCAO. Um, as I know from bitter experience, he doesn't have very much time. Uh, uh, so to give up an hour, especially over lunchtime, Chris, we really, really are so delighted to have you uh, uh, with us. So without further ado, hand over to you guys. Cool. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks. Martin is a professor of English in the University of Augsburg in, in, in Germany, in Bavaria. Uh, he's also, he also holds a visiting post in uh, University of Johannesburg. Um, and he spends time every year in Barcelona, University of Barcelona. So he's somebody who very much works around things. I first met him at a conference in Potsdam in Germany. And um, I realized that, you know, here was somebody with, with layers. Um, that his first book um, in German, uh, Zeit und Roman, was about time in the novel. And I thought, here's somebody who has the kind of vision to call a book time in the novel. Um, and, but, and there's a kind of philosophical underlay to, to what Martin does. I realized that somewhere within the strata of his various endeavors, um, it was a period spent in the University of Reading working on, on, on Beckett. Um, and I had also run across him before Potsdam um, for, for the book that he produced on Irish theatre. He, he's, he's published, uh, co-edited a, a, a quadrology of books, or is, I guess it is, there's four of them, on the theatres of Ireland, England, um, South Africa, and the United States, um, published by Matthewan. Um, there's the Irish one that I know, and it's the Irish one, if you want a kind of summaries of kind of the key playwrights of the last you know, 10, 20 years, this is, it's, it's really the book to go to. So here's somebody who is able to co cover theory. I mean, his most recent book, Theory Matters, you know, starts off with an essay by J. Hillis Miller. It contains people like Tom Doherty, uh, you know, key figures in, in contemporary literary theory. So here's somebody who covers literary theory, who covers the novel, covers the 19th century, and who knows Ireland and is actually published on Ireland. And... Um, I think later on we might get into talking about you know, the idea of what a new Irish studies might look like. But my sense from the moment I met Martin was, you know, here's the kind of person that we need if we're starting to think about what a new Irish studies might look like. Um, and so I'm going to hand over to Martin and he's going to talk about a project we've been working on, talking about for a while, on Irish time. So, Martin. Well, thank you very much. Um, um, no, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here, Jane. Thank you very much, everybody involved. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, as a matter of fact, I'm working on a monograph at the moment that's called The Inoperative Community, and it's on um, communities that are not based on inclusion and exclusion. It draws very heavily on, on uh, the work of the French philosopher Jean-Luc Nancy, and... Um, this is a community that is truly inoperative. <laughs> um, inoperative in a sense that it is as open as this building. It is as um, modern and as traditional as Trinity College is, and it looks to me, has always looked to me. So um, this is just perfect um, and truly inoperative and truly um, humane, as it were. And we need a lot of this given the state the world the world is in at the moment. So thank you. Indeed, this is drawing on stuff I've done before. Um, 
there was a monograph on, um, on, on the English novel in the 19th century. I really started off talking about time. That was basically to do with Thomas Hardy and uh, Joseph Conrad and um, Walter Pater, really, and Bram Stoker as well, because uh, as a matter of fact, Dracula, if anything, is a book about time. Um, time is everything, his hunters say. And Dracula is this interesting epitome of this sort of vampire-like timelessness. You can't age. You can't see him in the mirrors. It's pretty, pretty interesting. Then it was, as you mentioned, it was this, Time and the Novel. By the way, it's called Time, Zeit und Roman. It starts off with, the, um, early, with early modernism. It ends up with postmodernism, really. <laughs> but it was still, as you can see, the time um, when... German was an academic language. It is no longer an academic language. Times have changed. <laughs> As it were, you, 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 you publish in English and you find English publishers, and I've done so for the last eight, nine, ten years, really. You have to, yeah. because otherwise nobody can read and study German anymore. Yeah. The German department of Harvard University is about to be closed. Yeah. No. They, they will change all this into a huge... Um, modern languages department save half of the professorships so and then and, and there was another book um, this was called The Literature of Melancholia um, this is Paul Gray of 2012 which is also in fact drawing on the idea of temporality and in what way temporality really or, the, or time consciousness really sort of um, is to do with um, the psyche you know and psychological disease um, Chris is the ideal complementary person to myself. I'm more sort of um, chaotic in this respect, like <laughs> literary theoreticians sometimes are. He's a cultural historian, and uh, we found over the years that the work really um, adds up to each other, you know. Um, he sees a lot of things that I don't, and I hope... Vice versa. Well, um, <laughs> never mind. Um, so, um, time and the experience of time and time consciousness, as I said two days ago, do not constitute rigid, objective, or even culturally and historically invariant categories. That is maybe the onset of what we really started. Relativity theory has taught us that even ontologically there is no absolute, but only a relative status of time. And on the other hand, the consciousness of temporality, of irreversibility, or of the limited time span of our lives. Mm, it's a sad fact that we see our grandparents, our parents, our friends die, and that this is inevitable. Mm, but all this constitutes a perennial human craving, a human craving, not a particularly Irish craving. Um, that goes beyond races or nations. Um, reckoning with time, Martin Heidegger famously wrote, in being in time is constitutive for being in the world. Being in the world is to be reckoning with time. Um, as I argued briefly on Wednesday, researching into the temporalities of Irish literature and culture will to a large degree, as far as I can see it, and I have to say, this is only 50% of our project. <laughs> the other 50% is his. 
So if you have me talk today, I mean, he could do the same thing, of course, um, from his pers perspective, and we add up to each other. Um, it, never mind, I think we agree on the fact that uh, the project will, to a large degree, correspond to analyzing the process of modernization and mediatization of Irish society. Alongside, and sometimes opposed to developments elsewhere in Western Europe, or the United States. Starting from the early 19th century, we call it, I mean, there's a sort of parenthesis, 1880 to the present. Somebody asked two days ago, this is the answer, starting from the early 19th century makes perfect sense to me, or to us, insofar as only with the advent of romantic thought, really, or with the French Revolution, or with the first phase of the Industrial Revolution, the idea of a historical consciousness in the strict sense, based on change, based on multiperspectivity, based on a potentially open future for everyone, began. You know, I mean, the first knowledge, the first novel in the English language, to my, to, to, to my knowledge, the first novel was Jane Austen's. Yeah, Jane Austen was probably the first novelist that would conceive of protagonists with an entirely open future. It was a huge change to the, to the novel, really, you know? Romanticism thus, and its ensuing basis of organic change, that is the pan-European idea of romanticism, Argenic change rather than mechanical reproduction marks the start of modern life as we still experience it today. I mean, our day, I mean, our life is in one way or the other still based on this romantic uh, thought. André Breton, um, famously in his manifesto of surrealism, said that the actually said the same. He said, um, I actually nicked it from André Breton. There you go. Modernization and mediatization of society brought new modes of thinking about and experiencing both time and space. Think of, for instance, technological innovations of the 19th century. Some people don't even think that they date back to the 19th century, but still. The steam engine, railroads, the telephone, electricity, the wireless telegraph, x-ray, cinema, the bicycle, the automobile, the aeroplane, Somebody said that had you lived, had you been born in 1800 and died at 1900, in 1900, you would not have recognized the world anymore. So I don't, even, even if we think our world is rapidly changing, the 21st century and the internet has brought another sort of third wave of industrial revolution. I agree with this, but the 19th century in this respect is absolutely crucial. In fact, the first commercially practical incandescent lamp was invented by Thomas Alva Edison in 1879. Three years later, he opened the first public electric system in Pearl Street District of New York City. It would be interesting to, mm -hmm. interesting to see how all this translates into Dublin or Irish life. And the famous historian of architecture, Rainer Banham, called electrification, and I quote him, the greatest environmental revolution in human history since the domestication of fire. For our context here, the most relevant consequence of electric illumination was that it blurred the hitherto clear boundary of night and day. 
Yes, there had been candles and gas lights, but these weren't able to produce anything near to the power of radiance from electric light. Working conditions were changing too. Night shifts were possible. Whole halls were lighted by electric light. No way of doing this with candles. Modern mass production started, and as a consequence of this highly ambiguous existential situation, the modern discourse of progress firmly rests on the assumption that time, after all, can be controlled by scientific measurements, by linear chronologies, or by memory. In contrast to this, artists and arts, however, have ever since focused on the non-linear, um, on the circular, on the paradox. Think of Beckett, for instance. The paradox looms large in Beckett. And on the contingent sides of the experience of time. This is something that we really want to sort of research into, this correlation between time experience or time consciousness and contingency. Indeed, whatever is deviant from the norm of the linear has become the center of artistic reflections of self and world. Art, in many ways, works as a counter-discourse to the narrative of modernization, highlighting the dysfunctional or alienating sides of modernization, while at the same time integrating all such modern developments into a specific temporal framework. Moreover, art and artists have pointed out that, for instance, love, passions, or self-reflection follow entirely different temporal patterns and paradigms than streamlined, teleological, or linear ones. You remember uh, the two lovers in Shakespeare's As You Like It, Orlando, saying, uh, there's no clock in the forest. <laughs> Meaning, of course, that our love and our love to our beloveds <laughs> works in a completely different way, a different path. It's beautiful, I think. Studying time, therefore, can gain us insights into the sociological, sociocultural, historical, political, and aesthetic conditions philosophical epistemes and subjective sensitivities of a particular culture. At the same time, however, thinking about time can show us avenues to transcend such particularities. So it's the Irish sensitiveness on the, other, on the one hand, and, and, and we would have to see in what way we can go beyond it. To cut a long sh uh, story short, the evaluation of time and the ever-increasing heterogeneity of time consciousness entailed the transformations of dimensions of life and thought. So our focus must be on history and aesthetics, but also, I find, on psychoanalysis and phenomenological psychology from which we can learn how human beings experience past, present, and future. It wasn't just Sigmund Freud, there's many others who said that any sort of psychopathological um, experience or even disease is based on a sort of distorted sense of time. Um, I mentioned the sort of time and time consciousness uh, dimensions, mentioned mythical time, I don't have to repeat this again, temporality, you know, um, this implies two things, this stressing on temporality, namely the existential insight into the transitoriness of everything alive and into the irreversibility of anything we do or experience, with a bit of a sense of a feeling of melancholia 
And if you, you know, that, that sort of thing, um, when you imagine the famous iconographic scene of Hamlet um, holding Yorick's skull in his hands. It's a wonderful moment of comic relief on the one hand, but then on the reflection of the irreversibility of things. Social time. Yeah, I told you that Irish time changed on um, uh, October the 1st, 1916. Mm. France, I didn't know, I, I don't know if you know this, France had the most chaotic situation in terms of social time. With some regions, in the, by 1880 really, 1878, some regions having four different times, none of which had a simple conversion to Greenwich time. Each city had a local time taken from solar readings. Um, about four minutes behind each local time was astronomical time taken from fixed stars. The railroads, this is really interesting in France, the railroads of, used Paris time, which was nine minutes and 21 seconds ahead of Greenwich time. A law, now, now, now the French, you know, um, a law of 1891 made it legal time of France, but the railroads actually ran five minutes behind it in order to give passengers extra time to board. <laughs> <laughs> Thus, imagine the clocks inside railway stations were five minutes ahead of those on the tracks. <laughs> and I, I take this from Stephen Kern's brilliant study on um, the culture of space and time. For the French, these deviations from Greenwich Mean Time meant a matter of um, national pride. And, in, you know, yeah, in fact, plain and open Anglophobia. Um, but then it was the French who again took the lead in the mo movement for unified world time. Once the zero meridian was to be on English soil, they said, at least the institution of world time took place in France. There we go. Well, question for you, is this also an explanation for the Irish deviations from GMT? Would the striving for home rule also mean the striving for home time? Yeah, subjective time, I mentioned that briefly. I have a quote here. Um, the, I, I think a central experience of modern life is... Um, that, that suddenly all these, all these words come up, such as time budget, or time structure, timetable, schedules. Time apparently is felt as pressure. You've got to hit deadlines. It's an interesting word, deadline. <laughs> if you miss it, you're what, dead? <laughs> it's threatening. Can, can you feel the pressure? You can, can't you? I can feel the pressure because I, it's, some deadlines swing to mind. You know? yeah. um, this is, um, this is uh, Franz Kafka for you. Entry um, of his diary, 1922. Kafka commented on the maddening discordance between social time and subjective time. He says, I quote, it's impossible to sleep, impossible to wake, impossible to bear life, or more precisely, the successiveness of life. The clocks don't agree. The inner one rushes along in a devilish or demonic, in any case, inhuman way, while the outer goes, falteringly, its accustomed pace. 
end of quote. The modern experience, after all, is an ineluctable feeling of absurdity when you arrive too late, a feeling of guilt when you arrive too early, <laughs> a paradoxical catch-22 feeling of being early or late, but never on time. <laughs> Today we have made a virtue out of necessity, for instance, look at fashion. Being fashionable entails being anachronistic. When you are fashionable, the respective fashion, of course, is already out of fashion. That's the idea of fashion. <laughs> so, now, my question to this project is how does this translate into literature? On the one hand, it is the function of narrative, you could say, to articulate our experience of time, and on the, one, on the other that time is brought to language by narrative. Narrative itself, or more generally time as reshaped or refigured in literature, drama, poetry, or even painting or music, is a mode of subjective time that is configurations of story time and also of social time that is configurations of text time. And it affects major categories of chronology, of sequence, of duration, of speed, or frequency. We were talking about the phenomenon of repetition. Is there such a thing as repetition? Can there ever be an exact repetition? Mm. In a temporal universe, no. There can never be. This, 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 is, this is the idea of the two acts of waiting for Godot. It doesn't need a third act. <laughs> he says everything in two acts because, you know... The, you know, you would know how the third act ends, you know. There, there may be a second leaf on the tree. But um, um, it's this kind of interesting thing. Um, I would suggest to, to, to differentiate into threefold um, ways of refiguring this. And Paul Ricoeur has, of course, um, written a good deal of My Mises One and My Mises Two and My Mises Three. I'd rather give you an example. It's easy to see that a three-dimensionality of narrative time is part of our subjective experience of time. It is also a complex simulation of the dimensions of time consciousness. For instance, take Joyce. Joyce found that social time was nothing but arbitrary and ill-suited to order the diverse temporal experiences of life. Take Ulysses. I mean, he condensed the 20 years of the Odyssey into 16 hours in the life of Leopold Bloom, his meandering about shops, pubs, streets, and the red-light quarter of Dublin City. While Homer contracts 20 years to the text time of a thousand pages, Joyce stretches a story time of only 16 hours to the text time of a thousand pages. The heterogeneity of time consciousness is echoed by the heterogeneity of rhythms of prose in each episode of Joyce's novel. Take Iolus. There are unpredictable winds that echo unpredictable views of newspapermen, I mean, to say the least. Or take Lestrigonians. Famously, Bloom looks into the Liffey reflecting on the flood of water, the flood of food through the elementary canal, on the fetus flowing through the birth canal, on traffic flowing through Dublin, Dublin streets, Bowels, thought, language, history become representative of the flow of time itself on which the last chapter, the flow of Molly's stream of consciousness, becomes another synecdoch. 
Here even the double meaning of the word now is surfacing. What is now? Um, this now can be looked upon as an isolated moment and as an interruption of the continuity of linear progression. If you read Molly Bloom, it sounds a bit like that, as if it was timeless, this woman and her thoughts. Now, much, by the way, in the sense of St. Augustine and Husserl and Heidegger, can be looked upon as a continuous living through of a present in which the past and the future are always already imminent. While I'm speaking, you're actually you're completing my sentence in your own anticipation of language. This is what phenomenology, phenomenology is actually about. You know, while I'm speaking, my words fall into the past, and you add my words. You finish my sentence before I finish them. That's understanding. So in an Irish context, central to much of the most influential work in the field of Irish studies over the past two decades has been the, questions, the question of Ireland's engagement with modernity, particularly the ways in which the traumas and discontinuities of colonization mapped onto the traumas of modernity elsewhere in Europe and America. In contrast to this, our project, I think, proposes a new reckoning with time. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah in the field of Irish studies, taking into account these culturally specific forms of experience of time and temporality in an Irish context that we might call Irish time and also go beyond such. Of course, we know that Irish culture and Irish literature particularly has been characterized by their obsession with the past, with the obsession to memorize, the obsession to the dead, to ruins, or a melancholic mourning that could not be overcome. I have a friend who is professor of drama in Ireland, and he says um, to me, Martin, we met for a particular play, which we both hadn't read and knew nothing about. Sebastian Barry's Tales of Ballycumber. We went to a pub before, and he says to me, Martin, you know what? Next time I'm going to an Irish theatre to see an Irish play that has a ghost in it. I'm going to leave. <laughs> so there we are, in the theatre, in contemporary play 2013, I think it was, Tales of Belly Cumber, and first thing we see in the play is a ghost. <laughs> we actually stayed, <laughs> because we actually liked the play. It was actually Stephen Ray, I think, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Um, it was just... But I must mention Nicky Green here, Professor Nicholas Green, who diagnosed some years ago that Irish literature suffered from a disease he called historialis, <laughs> translated as stuckness in the past. Uh, David Lloyd's Irish Times. Um, never mind. Um, <laughs> t- temporalities of modernity, this is what he was looking at. Um, pretty characteristic first chapter on ruins. Second chapter on colonial trauma, post-colonial recovery and mourning the Irish famine. That's modernism in Ireland. Third chapter on specters of hunger. And he even reads Joyce in the light of post-colonial temporalities in an intertextual medieval framework. Interesting. Such a melancholic experience of time and temporality unveils itself as a pathological sadness, really. A A paralysis 
or a paralyzing anxiety and an agonizing, if sometimes com comforting, is that true, insistence on the past, which entails the loss of the future, it creates the impression almost of a standstill of time. I mean, that was Joyce's Dublin, you know, city of paralysis and that sort of thing. I think, and let me conclude on this, we shall therefore have to investigate in what way the fractures and traumata of colonization have brought about specific temporal rhythms and at the same time pursue how processes of mediatization, developments of infrastructure, and indeed networks of globalization have created new and fresh and creative temporal structures and mindsets, especially in post-Celtic Tiger Ireland, that no longer conceive of Ireland and the Irish as a cultural and aesthetic other or elsewhere, or as still suffering from the diseases of the past. Thank you. I want to perhaps give you a sense then of how, how the, the conversations between Martin and I go, um, that he'll, 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 he'll float things like this. Um, and, and I'll try to, sometimes for this is the way it goes, that I'll try to put some specifics you know, in terms of an Irish cultural context on it. Because at the core, I think, of, of what the project that we're engaged in is trying to answer is is how we can move toward a new kind of Irish studies that moves beyond a kind of Irish exceptionalism, that moves beyond particularity, but uses that particularity um, to, 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 think, you know, to think beyond, if you like. So, for instance, I mean, there's an example he alluded to there. I just want to unpack it a bit. And, and, and that's when the clocks changed a hundred years ago last October. Um, I think, you know, in, in the kind of flurry of centenary fever last year, um, we, we, we missed out on what was, for me, the really interesting centenary. That the Ir Ireland Time Act 1916 was passed in the summer of 1916, and it was largely in response to the Easter Rising that there was a, there was felt there was a need to have uniform <coughs> time in Dublin and London. Because up until that time, um, from 1881 onwards, Dublin time was 25 minutes and 21 seconds behind Greenwich Mean Time. So it was, kind of, it was, it was, it was, it was based on, on, on longitude. So in, in, in the summer of 1916, this act passed. So on the 1st of October 1916, Irish clocks changed. They went forward. Trouble is, this word didn't get around everywhere. <laughs> so there were, there were some places that sometimes for patriotic reasons and sometimes just for pure cussedness decided to, they were going to stay with <coughs> Irish time. Um, so that, that for a period in Ireland, there were you know, some places that were on Greenwich Mean Time, some were still on the old Irish time. A few years later, uh, the, the, the Summertime Act passed the British Parliament, and because it applied to Greenwich Mean Time, it also applied to Ireland, which meant, you know, what we do every year, the clock's going back. But this wasn't particularly popular in rural areas, because farmers liked the early start in the morning. They liked actually having more sunlight at the beginning of the day. So there were places in Ireland where summertime never took hold. <laughs> And there, there, so there are accounts from the period, actually Ernie O'Malley's diaries are very good on this, where he's going around the country trying to organize meetings and nobody's showing up because there's a variation of between an hour and an hour and 25 minutes as, as to what anybody thinks what time it is. So there's a very particular instance, and all this is happening in a period between, say, 1916-1922, right? the period in which, in which Joyce is working on Ulysses, if you like. So... The question arises for me, you know, what time is it 
You know, if if you know if your watch says that it's it's you know it's ten o'clock and my watch says that it's ten twenty-five and twenty-one seconds, and somebody else's watch says that it's eleven eleven twenty-five and twenty-one seconds, that all of us you know are, are operating on different times. So this thing that we tend to think of as a kind of fixed point of reference time, you know, Martin talks here about deadlines and how we you know how we live our lives by the clock. We're constantly looking at what time it is. That there's a, a, a there's a kind of culturally specific mode of experiencing time, and this whole history of Irish time changing is partly the product of history. I mean, it was directly a result of the 1916 rising. The need for un- uniform time was a product of technology. Mm-hmm. That you know, before you had a telegraph and before you had ways of communicating instantly with a number of different places, it didn't matter what time it was here or somewhere else because it took a day to get there anyway. Um, you know, so that, 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 that there's, there are culturally, historically particular circumstances that give rise to conditions that relate to experiences of temporality, which can be understood in, in philosophical terms, can be understood in psychological terms, um, and can be also understood in aesthetic terms. And I suppose what we're interested in is how that particularity of that Irish experience gives rise to all of those things, the philosophical, the psychological, but in particular the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Would that be and, sort of, Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and um, we were talking about if, if there is such a thing as, new, as, as a new take on Irish studies, yeah. you know, it, it should not be that sort of Irish studies that would be sort of wallowing backwards all the time, but mm. rather have a forward direction. <coughs> yeah. I think it's more, mm. it's more uh, refreshing and it's more uh, in, 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 mm. imaginative, you know. Mm. And, and I think this is, this is very much um, uh, justified by the fact what Irish life at the moment, as far as I can perceive it, um, is like, you know. Um, that that people are pretty globalized, mm-hmm. are pretty yeah. open-minded, and pretty. Um, I, mean, I mean, they're they're traveling. They're sort of in interaction. They're in, in sort of mm-hmm. into trade with all sorts of people all mm-hmm. around the world. Um, and and I think we should take heed of that. Mm-hmm. We should. I think I think this is a particularly interesting moment to think about time and how time moves into flux, because. I think for over the say the last twenty years, and it's hard to talk about time without situating a temporal in, 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 in a temporal frame. Our experience of time has transformed in ways that are more profound than at any moment than for the let's say in the previous century. In, in, you know, in, in that period of the eighteen nineties, things changed radically. In the, from the nineteen nineties onwards, things have changed radically. I remember coming across a, an, an article in the Irish Times from nineteen ninety three where Nulo Ceylon, writing, writing for the Irish Times, talks about her first experience of the internet. Right? It's 1993, and she came here to Trinity, and she was in the computer science department, which was down Pierce Street at the time, and she talks about talking to these young computer scientists in 1993 whose sense of time was of time zones kind of sweeping across the globe, you know, almost like kind of clouds on, on a sunny day, kind of sweeping across the, the landscape. And it's this true, is a, by the way. I, I was yeah. Fulbright professor yeah. at mm. NYU in New York yeah. in 1995. Yeah. And a friend of mine says, um, had I anything planned for the, for the evening? Mm. I said, no. He says, so come up to my apartment. I've got to show you something. Mm. 
And there I was in his apartment, and he turned on his computer and he said, um, and I said, what is it? And, I said, and he said, look, this is called World Wide Web. <laughs> I said, what? And, and I remember when I got home um, after that year in New York, um, I brought uh, the first Linux-based, I don't know if you know the uh, Linux f- 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 um, system, Rather than you had, that was the time before you had browsers mm. such as Netscape mm. or Internet Explorer or things like this. And the, the first email program that I knew was called Pine. <laughs> and it was the most, you had these funny modems mm. that you connect to your hell of expensive stuff. Mm. They made this sort of strange beeping tone, and you had AOL, AOL email service. Mm. But it changed the whole way people communicated. Yeah. Yeah. These days, it's, it mm. changed the way we write letters. Mm. I mean, mm. I remember the time when, when, when you wrote letters mm. home, mm. because there was no email. Mm. Yeah. You know? yeah. But this kind of acceleration, but then at the moment, there are whole research groups in my country. I mean, I, I must say, we, are, we, are, uh, we have developed into a post-post-post-post-industrial country. <laughs> Would we know how to deal with the um, all unemployed people? Mm. Um, we would shut down steel industry completely. Mm. There's there's some coal industry even mining. Um, there are some left. There's some left, but it, everybody knows that it would be cheaper to get this imported from Finland or Russia or mm. any, anywhere. Um, it is it is really interesting the way this sort of rhythm has changed. Mm. And I suppose where a lot of our work is coming from is a recognition that we have lived through a revolution. And it's a revolution in consciousness, not to, not, you know, not to make too inflated claim. This it is in, in, yeah. consciousness yeah. of temporality. We've lived through that and we've absorbed it. And we're not even amazed by it anymore. Mm-hmm. It just is. Um, and in some ways, I think the, 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 our project focusing on, on literature and particularly going back to that earlier period of the 20th century, when I think there was arguably a comparable revolution in the consciousness of temporality. And we can, you know, it's an argument. Yes, I mean, there is there's this obsessiveness with uh-huh. memory. Yeah. I mean, storage yeah. for a computer yeah. is a big problem, isn't it? Yeah. It's even a storage yeah. for... They tell you every week they come up with a new phone, they say you need more storage. <laughs> in other words, more memory. <laughs> and I tell you what, um, the psychological backlash of all of this, uh, life has accelerated so much... Hmm. That we have that that in Germany we have um, um, therapy groups <laughs> that are into deceleration. <laughs> they offer deceleration weekends <laughs> for people to sort of decelerate to, to come down. <laughs> to sort of, and and you, you you should have seen they had they had a, a television um, footage the other day and it was almost all these manager sort of type of mm-hmm. people in their suits they come and they are once they enter on these weekends they are supposed to uh, hand over their phones mm-hmm. you should see their faces <laughs> while they're doing this <laughs> you want my phone <laughs> I am my phone actually it's it's René Descartes I think therefore I am it should be iPhone therefore I am iPhone, therefore I am. 
you know, even in this sort of materialist fashion, it has changed so much, and it's yeah. really fascinating. Yeah. In this respect, mm. I think Ireland is no different mm. anymore from any other globalized country in the world, and I think this is mm. something that... In, in a sense, this is the tension we're trying to negotiate. Yeah, yeah. Ireland is we should, no different, and Ireland is different. And I, and, yeah. and I think yeah. if, if we're talking about how a new Irish studies can formulate itself, it's in that paradox, really, in that sense of there is particularity, there are particular historical, social, cultural circumstances, and yet, you know, it, it's not anomalous. And I think that, that's the difficult negotiation. And particularly go back to that early moment in the early 20th century, mm-hmm. when there is this strong sense of Irish particularity and Irish anomaly, but also this acute sense of temporal disjunction. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that can tell us things not only about that period for its own sake, which is worth doing, but about our own moment and, and, and a way to reflect on something that I think has become very difficult to reflect on in our own moment. Yeah.